1: Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hackstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Hey! Well, good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280, The Patriot. And of course, I am joined in studio again with my wonderful co-host and producer of Education Nation, Mark Durkin.
0: Nice to see you again, Rebecca. How are you this evening? I am
1: good. I'm very good, and I'm excited to have our guest, Gordon, back on with us. Yes. Um, If you were listening last week, um, we were talking a lot about the transfer of power from the Trump administration to the yes. Biden administration, and especially how that relates to education. And I'm going to be introducing our guests here but uh, very soon, but we got to talk a little bit about what the ramifications of that are um, and looking at school choice and the Biden administration's desire to really support unions uh, over No student- funding for
0: private charter schools, right. which was a student complete learning. opposite move from the support that charter schools had under President number 44, Barack Obama.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is really surprising given the fact that that was a Democratic president. Absolutely. So, um, a sad, a sad change here. So, um, we're going to continue our conversation with Gordon, but I'd like to introduce him first. Um, he is joining us by telephone tonight to provide, of course, insight into what that education policy might look like. We'll continue that conversation. And, um, Gordon Pennington is a former director of marketing with clothing giant Tommy Hilfiger. He's also a full-time international consultant to a number of corporations, governments, and institutions. He's widely known for his broad understanding of the growing power and influence of technology and the series of connections involving global media and entertainment industries. So Gordon is currently the Managing Director of Burning Media Group and of course once again we're grateful to have you on with us. Thanks for joining us, Gordon.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure and thank you for the kind of uh, topical um, significance uh, you're bringing to your listening audience. It's obviously critical and education is the Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the biggest concerns, if we're going to reform anything in our country today, we have to take a look at education or we're on a fool's errand because it's just it's just so institutionally off course. It is that I don't see any way to turn a nation around until we turn its education systems around. Yes.
1: Yes. Oh, boy. I could not agree with you more, Gordon. Um, And I, I do think if there's one silver lining that is coming out of this whole situation from COVID to critical race theory, um, from the 1619 um, ab- project. project, is that people are starting to realize the significance of our K-12 public schools. Mm-hmm. For so long, it's just always been brushed under the rug, whether it was a Democrat or Republican president, it didn't matter. Um, The education policy was always one of the last things they ever talked about. In fact, Trump was the first president, in my recollection, that ever even added education as part of his platform. Um, as he was running for president and, and not, not platform that, you know, I'm sure they all had platforms, he talked it about was detailed. it. He, 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 it was part of his campaigning on a regular basis. Yep. And um I, I just really do hope that Americans wake up to what the K-12 schools are doing and how much of an influence they've been on where we are today. Mm-hmm. And, and how they're going to influence going forward. And so we do need to turn them around. I totally agree with you, um, Gordon.
0: You know, I, I want to just pick up tonight where we, in a sense, left off last week. We tried to hurry uh, through uh, the president and his uh, affiliations with uh, teachers unions. Um, in fact, his wife, Jill, uh, has worked as an educator for more than 30 years. From what I understand, she's going to continue her work in education as First Lady, and she's also a member of the National Education Association Teachers Union. And, um, you know, then-candidate Biden, he had received the endorsement from the NEA, and he had said the following. He said this, quote, When we win this election, we're going to get the support you need and the respect You deserve. And he also said that this was going to be a teacher oriented Department of Education. And that certainly seems to be the path that is being followed with the uh, nomination of Miguel Cardona from the state of Connecticut. But he also told Joe Biden, that is, he told the National Education Association uh, to look for higher salaries for educators, universal pre K, tripling the funding for Title I schools doubling the number of school psychologists counselors nurses and social workers in schools and so you had mentioned last week gordon that you know this was a bit to, to unpack and i just kind of wanted to give you a few moments here to do so as you uh, see fit based on just some of your research and your time spent in washington dc and this really all begs the question what about the students doesn't it
2: Absolutely, Mark. And I think you're right on point. And the questions you asked last week when we were on the uh, program was, we were very timely, because I think you've got to circle back, uh, as Jen Saki says, to questions yeah. from their We're never from. going to
1: be able to use uh, that phrase again yeah. without laughing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wish there was more to laugh at. Right, I right. know. It is unfortunate yeah. that they don't have better answers or clear answers. But the point is, We should, as a society, be looking at what is the desired product of education itself. In other words, what is the outcome we want? So if you were to look at this politically or through any other lens, what do societies expect from education? Well, I would submit to you that uh, the the historical perspective around um, classical Christian education is to create people who are thinkers and are critical thinkers— and have discernment and can predict for truth from error and have some set of assumptions around which civilizations themselves have been posited regarding the ideas that make them sustainable. Mm -hmm. So if Western civilization, being what it is, the longest, most sustained, is any civilization perfect? No. But within that, you have empires and nation-states, which on average have lasted 238 years. And this goes all the way back to the Assyrians and you could bring it up to the, you know, the last 500 years and you could posit this around the Spanish and the French and the, and the British empires and and what you might call the an American era of empire or mm-hmm. influence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I think, you know, we're at 245 years now. Mm-hmm. And what is the future for us? Because we have all the hallmarks of social and cultural decline. Mm-hmm. And you know, most empires, most democracies end in a kind of a spiral of dysfunction that leads to a kind of social suicide.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And how can we step back from that process long enough to see what those elements of health and sustainability are versus those things which lead to a kind of fatal experiment in social re-engineering? And I fear that our, the concern we have now is we're in that period of fatal experimentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's sure seems that way. And this is where the left yeah, it does. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not trying to sound bleak, because I think there are always remnants, and I think there are always opportunities, how the Irish saved civilization, Kevin Mayhill's famous poem on that. But I think we're in a period of time where we may be, in fact, that remnant mm-hmm. that is holding on to the things which have proven the most sustainable in Western civilization. We're really at a at a critical pivot point. Mm-hmm. So to go back to these, these two fallworks of thinking, what what is it that we want to see as an outcome of education? Well, I, I submit to you that what we're creating are citizens. Mm-hmm. And what should those citizens' capabilities be constituted by? And I think on the left, if you will, largely, and I, and I say this from you know, liberal progressivism all the way to radical leftism, and very few people on the left understand where the left came from, and that would be a whole program in itself. And mm-hmm. worth having, because I think the ideas that we submit to out of convenience uh, don't always tend to be things that we fully understand. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, but largely speaking, let's just go back to what education uh, produces. The product is a citizen. The product of the student becomes a citizen. And what should that citizen be capable of? Right. Uh, toward, toward the left, the idea is that that citizen should be a conformist above all. Why? Because you have a certain assumption about who is qualified to lead societies and that that social assumption is around elitism mm-hmm. and that elitism is is based on something that is rooted in a kind of moral authority and l- lest i start start sounding like i'm going down a whole you know lecture path here and i do lecture on this stuff
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, i do think it's more it's important to think about this what do we want from education it is a process that leads to a, pro- a product and i don't mean to objectify human beings in that regard i just mean The product of our educational process leads to something yeah and i think we have a very different set of assumptions we want people that are robust in their ability to think and disagree with civility and debate Mm -hmm. and understanding and discussion have a wide range of ideas but it has to be based on some some corpus of ideas some canon of thinking Mm -hmm. and so we start with the things that have the longest proven period of time. that isn't to mean that we don't you know that we object to any Knowledge of uh, obscure, you know, B- Bolivian lesbian poets. Um, mm-hmm. I just don't think you can go back to Boliv- Bolivian lesbian poets to say that that's the foundation of, of, of a sustainable civilization. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we should be aware of uh, minority voices and minority concerns. We mm-hmm. should be aware of them, but we should also be able to put that in a construct that says, "What do these?" ideas produce? What is ultimately sustainable? So Mm -hmm. back to Mark's question, I think we've really got to take a fresh new look at what we want from the educational process as a product, and therefore I salute you uh, and those of you in your listening audience who are making the kind of commitments and sacrifices to produce a remnant culture of people that are, you know, highly educated, in my mind, as opposed to highly conformist. Mm-hmm.
3: Right.
1: I really like the point that you're making, Gordon. I think it's very important. And if you look at the history of, of even just American education, really in the last, uh, I don't know, probably 50 years, education really started to shift, even in its philosophy here, from being more of a citizen producer, which is more what you're talking about, and we agree with you, and... Mm-hmm. Um, And, and of course, even then, you can produce two different types of citizens, as you pointed out. However, I actually don't think that the, the philosophy of education anymore has anything to do with that. I think the way, where it's gone is towards career development. And I think because it took that big focus shift, I think then the whole element of producing a citizen has slowly but surely been getting left behind. And, uh, with focus going on career development, and I think that's a huge mistake. You know, we when you do develop a full citizen by giving them the foundational tools, like you're talking about the time-tested um, philosophies and and great books and com- great conversations, um, you're producing a sort of citizen that then can go into any type of career path that they want and be successful, most likely. Um, and so anyway, I just, I really think that you're making an important point and I do believe that that's one of the reasons why we've gotten away from, um, the type of citizen that we really need to be producing in schools.
0: Well, and the thing is, is that there's really been a subtle shift of creating, I mean, you hate to put it this way, but robots, I mean, mm-hmm. in the name of what is the cutting edge of potential careers and jobs and the fact that there could be, uh, I've heard people speak about there being a capitalization and benefit of uh, capitalism moving in a different direction because of these types of careers but in reality you're really moving people in a direction to just think one certain way and Mm -hmm. not be free to Mm -hmm. explore other avenues maybe that are non-conventional for uh, whatever it is that people want to train themselves up to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, let's go ahead and shift well, you bring up a
2: good. Go you bring up a good point, Mark, because yep. ca- capital has many different forms and manifestations. So, for example, the social capital of education yes. is probably one of our mo- more robust forms of capital deployment. And how do we use education to prepare people for the types of jobs and careers as well as the non-conformist directions that we need people to be, you know, people of conscience. At what point do people right. have to have uh, w- within that construct of preparation for a future, for a, for a career, not just conformity, but the ability to question the authority. Of course, by the way, those were tenets of classical liberalism at one time, questioning right. authority right. Mm-hmm. on the basis of ideas and norms and, and morals and ethics and, and political philosophy that people are largely, increasingly unacquainted with, and this is a this is probably the greatest danger, and um, and I would submit that one of the tools of influence, because education takes place not only in the classroom, it takes place everywhere. You are confronted with ideas and behaviors.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So what is it? What is what's the what are the mechanisms that are shaping ideas and behaviors at a more comprehensive and immersive and accelerated way than technology today? And this is why uh, at the break we spoke briefly about a book I had been begging people to read two years ago when it came out uh, by Professor Dr. Shoshana Zuboff, that's Z-U-B-O-F-F, at the Harvard Business School. I think she's in her early 70s now or maybe older. Uh, She might have been closer to 80, but she came out with an extraordinary book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. On public affairs press, and I always encourage people yeah. to go to the publishers to buy things as opposed to Amazon yeah. as an intermediary, because right. the monopolistic practices of these intermediaries are going to suffocate free speech and, mm-hmm. and free trade. Mm-hmm. So I would urge your your listeners to go to publishers themselves to acquire these books. But Public Affairs Press published the book "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism." And what's significant about that, and I don't agree with Professor Zuboff's assumptions about politics or economics entirely, but she nails it when it comes to creating an index of all of the ways in which human beings become um, capitalized, essentially, uh, by powerful interests that are essentially studying our behaviors in a way that we've never been able to see ourselves before historically because of big data, And uh, and artificial intelligence and the capability of these combined forces to create algorithmic assumptions about our behaviors, which are both as frightening as they are extraordinary.
3: Mm -hmm. But
2: this is impacting education because it's impacting neurological levels of behavior. And that's a big part of how we're preparing and and, and modifying people's uh, preparation for life. So education takes place not only, again, in the classroom or in the home, but increasingly some people in the classical Christian education world, including my dear friend Dr. Davies Owens, uh, will call it the 3.01 p.m. moment. And what he means by that is when the kids are generally released from classes at 3 o'clock, by three hundred one, they've got a phone out, or they've got you know a smartphone. Some device mm-hmm. is now continuing the process of influencing them past the right. classroom, and and it can be good or bad. I mean, it's just like the logo on an Apple device. It's a bite out of the apple, and I would submit to you a sort of a reflection, metaphorically, of the a fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got all the all the worst and all the best ideas. <laughs> Yep. in life, in some manner, available there. So yeah. how you configure that has a lot to do with influence and mentoring.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's uh, shift gears here just a little bit. In the summer of 2020, uh, Gordon, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, by extension, protects gay and transgender individuals from being fired for reasons related to their sexual orientation or gender identity. And in a separate ruling over the summer, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court also ruled to strengthen legal protections for religious institutions, recognizing the First Amendment free exercise of religion for religious schools that carry out their responsibility of educating and forming students in the faith. And so when you see this, I mean, this kind of almost sets up a little bit of a collision course uh, based on the U.S. Supreme Court's rulings. I'm just wondering, um, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, what this might look like for religious institutions moving forward based on these two different rulings.
2: Well, it's a conflict by design. I think you go back to the conditions, social conditions and things that really needed remediation and change. We really we desperately needed the Civil Rights Act and and in sixty four and Title Seven in that regard was seen in a totally different way by the American Psychological Association and, and virtually everybody else culturally. Right. In the cultural moment we're in today, which is an immersion in confusion. And and as I think we said last week in our conversation on your program uh, the kind of social engineering experiment that we're subjecting people to. And look, these things become, I'm sorry to, to suggest and, and use the word fashionable, but a lot of things that, that take place in the realm of um, science and pseudo look, psychology is in many ways pseudoscientific because of a lot of its assumptions, but we're, we're not clear about what our humanity is, is construed of entirely, and we're in an era in which our ability to experiment on people is, exceeds our ability to assess with any kind of wisdom or, or real comprehension what that impact has on people. So what people are, are capable of doing experimentally is not necessarily sustainable socially or culturally, or, and certainly educationally. So, yeah, there's a collision course here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, all, of course, all this stuff goes under the name of science, and a lot of science today is pseudoscience and, and, and fashionable you know subscience because it's really not rooted in the disciplines of the empirical method.
3: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
2: I've, I've grown so tired personally hearing people invoke science through politics to say, well, Me science too. will guide us, and we believe in science. Well, precisely what do you mean by that? Because you've already embraced a lot of pseudoscience under mm-hmm. the rubric that science is Unassailably objective, right. and of course, it isn't under those uh, under the lens by which they're invoking it as something is that's inviolable and transcendent. And mm-hmm. this is a replacement, honestly, for a kind of uh, a false cosmology. And you know, we, I, as we talk, I'm just thinking of one program after another that we could have on the topic. Right, topics, right, mm-hmm. cri- critically mm-hmm. important. Yes. right. And
0: I think too, what I'm you know what I was thinking about. I'm, I'm thankful for the Supreme Court ruling. That is aimed at protecting the First Amendment. Free Exercise of Religion for Religious Schools, because what I feel like is happening, and you think of, you know, Title IX, 1972, was to protect uh, women and and female involvement in sports and academics and scholarships. And, you know, now that we see civil rights are being extended towards a particular action that our people are taking, I mean, that just seems to be a very indirect way of trying to confront religious belief, which we know is all predicated on beliefs that then lead to actions.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: There's no question about it. And civil rights are being abused today for a number of other politicized reasons. And I had a chance to talk to John Lewis before, a couple of years before he passed away, who marched with an organized youth for Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was interesting, I've talked to other civil rights leaders who are part of the Southern Christian Leadership Movement and and, uh, who had been uh, there in the 1960s, in the original days of the Civil Rights Movement, and they had agreed with me uh, you know, privately mm. to say that much of what is being extensively uh, invoked as a civil right isn't a reflection of what they stood for and what Dr. Martin Luther King stood for. And I think Dr. Martin Luther King would be, uh, would be chagrined by much of what goes on in the name of, quote-unquote, civil rights today, mm-hmm. when I think it's really a politicized experiment in social engineering for power. Mm-hmm. and 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 not for equality and not for truth but on, on the basis in which he stood for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it, it's a shame that those conversations weren't had in the public sphere. In fact, I, I believe we need more public roundtables and discussion and debate, not less. And it appears to me that what we've done is substituted social media platforms for real discussion forums in, in which people are with each other, present, in person, in live debate and discussion, because I think it's much healthier for human beings Mm -hmm. to to have that kind of um, uh, encounter incarnationally, uh, to, to shape ideas through discussion and debate and dissent. But absent that, there's too much power and too much control in the hands of too few people. And we're seeing it now in the abuse and and uh, suppression of our First Amendment rights. And this this is perhaps the most frightening moment in my lifetime. Uh, And I'm in my 60s now, so this is something we've never seen before. And the lack of discourse, the lack of debate, vilifying people, objectifying people, labeling people, dismissing people, oppressing and suppressing their ideas and opinion and dissent is, is clearly the most dangerous moment in our national existence today. We've got to got to be able to address it openly Mm
3: -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. you were talking a little bit uh about dr martin luther king and that you thought he'd probably be appalled at what is being um uh, talked about and discussed in the name of civil rights let's turn our attention to critical race theory because that is something that is a part of that movement obviously And the CRT really understands the world by viewing everything through the lens of whiteness and white racism. And President Biden recently signed an executive order restoring critical race theory training for federal agencies and federal contractors. We know that Trump had removed that, and he also um, created the 1776 Project instead of the, to try to counteract the 1619 Project. Can you contrast the critical race theory framework with the ideals in which our great nation was founded upon?
2: Well, sure. Look, our nation is, is extraordinary and imperfect. It's like all of Western civilization, uh, but it has the means to be self-corrective, and I think many of the discussions that have come through debate and discussion of uh, whatever our presuppositions are about race. And by the way, when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to, to racism, you know, I, I haven't traveled as many as much as many of my friends, but I've been to 60 countries in which I've seen, especially in Africa, West Africa, East Africa. I've seen it in Asia. I've seen it even in India. I've seen racism manifest uh, in far more um, in far more violent and um, and uh, oppressive, conflicted Mm -hmm, ways. mm -hmm, Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you. Yeah, around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not. It's not a singular issue for us. And frankly, it's a result. You have to have a theological perspective on this. So you don't understand human dysfunction at all. And I think it's rooted in our innate sense of independence and rebellion and the the discord that attends all of human history. Mm -hmm. So where do you want to posit that? If you don't have a theology of sin and selfishness, where do you start with that? Please show me a tribe or a a, a culture or a society that is without something that is disfiguring and, and grossly disfiguring. And when you get different tribes and groups of people together, where have you had a more successful overall exp- outcome than you've had in the United States? That's right. Given mm-hmm. that we are e pluribus unum? out of many, now we're in this e unum pluribus, right. state, which mm-hmm. out of one one sense of you know some kind of you know a, a mm-hmm. sentient purpose in coming together, we're now exploring fragmentation above unity
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that never ends well and again it's another one of the indicators that we are in a very very dangerous place like every culture and society before us every civilization uh has met ultimately with more disaster than triumph so how do we uh, judge ourselves in that process so just, just going back to critical race theory and the very idea it essentially it promulgates class warfare
3: mm-hmm.
2: and race warfare. And uh, it's, it, it's it's very, very injurious to our national health and psyche because we are imperfect. And you will always have people who have a tendency towards certain presuppositions about other people. Look, you have it all over the world. I could give you example after example. When you look at the people that, can, that return uh, before the Emancipation Proclamation, Free slaves that went back to West Africa and went back to the free state, Liberia, and yeah. established Mon- Mon- Monrovia. Um, and you-, you think about what they were met with. When they came back, they were not accepted. That they-, they were treated to a kind of racial discrimination for having simply come back to the tribal uh, societies that they had left generations before and it's anyway you can see how problematic it is the critical race theory explores and in fact exploits something that exists all over the world without a theology of sin you're never going to end in a place where you're going to find Um, equality amongst people on on the basis of race or anything else because you don't
1: really understand the human condition (laughs) right Gordon on that note it is so hard to say goodbye to you because it's such interesting (laughs) conversation but we need to wrap it up thank you for joining us Gordon and thank you Mark and have a great night and we will see you next week